come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode number 50 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, I'm going to have Journey Through the Aughts number 23 here as I have featured reviews of the 2020 film of 12 Hour Shift. And then the 1960s film that I'm going to be covering on this episode is going to be Adam Age Vampire. And I have a lot of mini reviews for you as... I've been really, you know, trying to tackle, trying to get as many watches as I can for these 31 days of horror, and so I have featured on here is The Fun House, The Invisible Man from 2020, Blackenstein, Fears of the Dark, The Witch Who Came from the Sea, Demons, Resident Evil Apocalypse, The Night of the Hunter, and then the last film that I have featured on here as a mini-review is going to be Day of the Dead, the original one from 1985. And then I did end up watching another movie, but I didn't have time to do the written review and then record everything as I wanted to make sure that I got this episode out on time and everything like that. So I already have one of those on there, but I don't want to burden you necessarily so much with that. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me.
my first mini review that I have for you is going to be The Fun House from 1981. This is directed by the great Toby Hooper. This was written by Lawrence J. Block. It stars Elizabeth Barringe, Sean Carson, and Janine Austin. This is a horror film from the United States that is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being four teenage friends spend the night in a carnival funhouse and are stalked by a deformed man in a Frankenstein mask. Now, this is a movie that I remember seeing the VHS case for in the movie store. It really freaked me out, but I never actually took this one home. I also never put together until later that Toby Hooper directed this, which is funny, is that I watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which you know has a much more worse reputation than this film did. This one had been in a blind spot for me, and... It was one that I added to a list of films to check out when I started listening to podcasts, and I finally have gotten around to it for October Movie Challenges, as one of them is Hooptober, where I'm required to watch a Toby Hooper film, you know, during October. Now, we start this off in kind of an interesting way, where they're paying homage to Psycho, where we have Amy Harper, who is Beringe, as she is in the shower, but then we get to see that the room of somebody who is really into the macabre and horror, and that person takes a knife off the wall, as well as putting on a mask, and, you know, scares the heck out of his sister, as it turns out to be her brother, Joey, who is Carson. Now, she threatens that she's going to get him back for what he did, and he'll never forget that. Now, her parents don't want her going to the local carnival, because it appears that two little girls had disappeared in Fairfield County, which seems to be pretty close by, and her father really isn't a big fan of it, and then her mother's not a big fan of the guy that she's going on a date with, of Buzz Dawson, who is Cooper Huckabee. Now, he shows up, and they go to pick up... They're two friends of Liz Duncan, who is Largo Woodruff, and Richie Atterbury, who is Miles Chapin. Now, we get a lot of scenes of the carnival, which I think they really do a good job at establishing, you know, the realism there. And then they kind of go through different things, like, you know, riding rides, playing carnival games, go inside of a freak show, which is interesting here that the main attraction is a malformed baby inside of a glass jar. They don't think it is real, though. And then as the night goes on, they upset a gypsy fortune teller of Madame Zena, who is Sylvia Miles. I mean, they do this by keep laughing and she freaks out on him. Now, Richie comes up with the idea to stay the night inside of the funhouse. He claims that a friend did this and that it can be done. Buzz agrees and the girls seem to go along with it as well. To complicate matters, though, is that Joey snuck out of his room and walked all the way to the carnival as well. He's been having his own fun and then sees his sister and her friends going to the funhouse, but doesn't see them come out. Now, he ends up getting spooked and ends up being... He ends up fainting when he gets too terrified. And then his parents are called... Now, inside of the funhouse, though, things take a turn when the person that helps run it is in a Frankenstein's monster mask, and the person portraying this is Wayne Doba. Now, he invites Madame Zena back, and things don't go as planned, and she ends up dead. The teens see this happen, and they no longer want to stay the night there, and they try to find an exit, but everything seems to be locked. Frankenstein brings back the carnival barker, who is Kevin Conway, and he sees what happens, and then he realizes the money is gone from a lockbox, and that they're not alone inside the funhouse. Under the mask though, Boba is actually a monster, and he's killed before. Now, I've already kind of said my piece on how the VHS case look. You'd think coming in this is about killer clowns, which would be an interesting movie, but that really isn't the case with this at all. That's not to say I hated what we got here. I still like that they, you know, said this in a carnival, as that's an amazing setting, for sure. And I think that they do a really good job at giving us that feel, as I've already said, about the carnival, you know, where it actually does feel like it. And I could also see that there are less savory characters that are hired on to work here. 
So, I mean, if you put them in a clown makeup, that'd be an interesting, you know, having them hunting down people. And you also got a cool setting. But I will give credit, you know, to at least locking these four inside the funhouse for this movie. Now, what I really kind of noticed here that this is a slasher movie. We really only get a few deaths, and they really don't start happening until the 45-minute mark. This movie does give us that opening scare and then some creepy parts throughout. As there is a moment where Joey, when he's walking to the carnival, is approached by a man in a truck, uh, portrayed by Ralph Moreno. What, that's just scary in itself and then some of the things in the freak show both are sad and scary to me but it really doesn't go full horror until that 45 minute mark and it is funny though is that this plays like a slow burn until then i do think that the look of the monster is really well done and i wasn't surprised to see rick baker's name in the credits i mean his name you know his nickname at least is rick baker nightmare maker it really isn't fair to say that someone who is deformed from birth is a monster. And the thing in the jar that we saw earlier is a smaller version. And we learn about the history there. But it is pretty easy to kind of piece together in my opinion. And it's also interesting that Conway is the father. He just isn't necessarily proud. And then it looked very similar to something from the movie Phenomena. And I mean, I could tell that it was a mask. But I'll take it as it doesn't look bad or take me out of anything there. Now... What I want to go deeper into the, here are the effects. I think the deaths that we do get are fine. We are limited on what the characters, so there's the problem where you don't get a lot of deaths. And some of them are done off screen, which does hurt the movie for me. And this is coming out right in the boom of the slasher heyday with, you know, Friday the 13th and the series are kicking off. Halloween and Black Christmas have already been out. I think the cinematography is good. It's just lacking in the effects. And then for the acting, I think Beringe, I don't love her as the final girl. She has an odd look to her, but we do get to see her topless a couple times. In all fairness, though, I think she's mousy to start, and then the growth to show how everything, you know, works out in the end. Carson is a little jerk, and I don't blame Amy for, you know, being as mad as she is. The kid is ballsy, and I think his performance is fine as an annoying brother. Huckabee looked too old for the character he's playing. He does give off the cool guy vibes they're going for, though. Woodruff was fine. Chapin is quite interesting to me. He's not a great student, and he does some really shady things. I wouldn't expect that from the character, so that is interesting. David Carson... Sonia Zomina, Conway, William Finley, Susie Malnick, and Miles are all good as the Carnies. And then props as well to Doba, who I guess was a former mime that does a good job at not speaking and just playing this monster well. But I think this is just an interesting movie. I think it's a little bit boring, unfortunately, for a slasher movie. I do think that it finally picks up, you know, at that like second half of the movie. And I mean, I do think they do a good job at making the carnival feel real. It's just not necessarily my cup of tea, and I had to come in with a 6 out of 10 on this movie. And then I have for you The Invisible Man from 2020. Now, this was a featured review back on episode number 18, which is actually Centennial Club episode number 2 as well. So I'm not necessarily going to go you know, too much into this movie, since if you want to hear more of my in-depth thoughts, I would go over there. Just kind of wanted to do an update here. Currently on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. And then really just some of the things to kind of, you know, tack on that I didn't say in that previous thing is I'll admit when I first watched the movie, I had no idea what the term gaslighting actually meant. Having, you know, learned that and then given this a rewatch, I can really see, you know, how that is a major theme of this movie. Now, it's not more in the traditional sense where, you know, somebody would tell somebody something and then call them crazy when they start to, you know, respond that way. But everything that Adrian is doing here to Cecilia, I feel like definitely falls into that whole thing there where she's experiencing these things where at first we're wondering if, you know, it is just all in her head, but we know that there's actually somebody there messing with her, just the characters around her don't, which I've already said I do believe that they act in a very natural way, 
But Adrian is really just doing gaslighting things to her with making people get turned against her. And then when she tries to say what's actually happening here, she seems to be, she's like the crazy one here. And then I've heard a couple of issues that people have brought up from, I mean, a few different people actually. Now, the suit never is supposed to give them like superhuman strength, but it does seem like it does. I know I tried to make the argument that if somebody, you know, has lost their conscience, they could have a little bit more strength. Not as much as they have in this film, and after a rewatch, I can really see that. Then I have to give a shout out to Christian from over on the Exploding Heads movie podcast, because he was the one that had brought up the fact that all these little cameras in the suit would be making some sort of noise no matter what. And I really was thinking about that when I was watching it this time. It starts to when something happens to the suit, but I do think that it would be, you know, something that even if it's the most minute type of thing, there still would be some sort of sound because we don't have a way to, you know, prevent something like that from happening. So I will admit my rating came down from the original nine that I gave it. I still think this is a contender for my year end list and everything like that. But my score here is actually going to be still an 8.5, which isn't anything to, you know, kind of be upset about. This is still a good movie, and I definitely think you should give this one a viewing, as I still think it's one of the best films of the year. And then I have for you Blackenstein from 1973. This is directed by William A. Levy, written by Frank R. Satollery. And then we have the starring John Hart, Ivory Stone, and Jodie Sue. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from the United States, and this is currently sitting on a 3.4 on IMDb and a 2.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, Eddie is a Vietnam veteran who loses his arms and legs when he steps on a landmine. A brilliant surgeon is able to attach new limbs, but his jealous assistant switches the DNA injections, transforming him into a gigantic killer. Now I'll admit, as a younger horror fan, these were the movies that I would have avoided. There was a stretch where I was a bit more pretentious, and this movie would have been one I would have put my nose up to. Once I saw Blackula and realized that these movies actually have some substance, despite many of them being a little bit more whimsical, I would say that Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, really helped as well. Now this is the one that I saw as well due to a October movie challenge that I'm doing where I needed to have another film that either had a black lead, a black director, or a black cast, so I figured, you know, checking out another one of these black exploitation films would help. Now, this movie, we start off in a lab that is ran by Dr. Stein, who is Hart. Now, the movie then takes us to the airport where a Dr. Winifred Walker, who is Stone, has arrived in town. She goes to see Dr. Stein, and we learn that she is a former student. Now, Dr. Stein is a world-renowned doctor, as he won a Nobel Prize in science due to cracking the DNA genetics code. And then just in general, he's doing some groundbreaking research. Winifred wants to work under him, and he agrees. And then she's also joining the other assistant of Malcolm, who is portrayed by Roosevelt Jackson. Now, they go on rounds to see the different patients, but the real reason that Winifred decided to come join him as well is that her fiancé is coming back as a Vietnam vet, and he had stepped on a landmine and lost both of his arms and legs. He is extremely depressed, he has broke off their engagement, and has given up on life. She wants Dr. Stein to see if she can help Eddie, he does agree as well to come see him in the hospital. And then this is an interesting little scene we get here where Eddie asks for some ice cream and an orderly who is portrayed by John Dennis is very rude to Eddie. There is some deep-seated hatred here and it appears that the orderly didn't make the cut to get into Vietnam. He's bitter and taking this out on this bedridden man. This orderly then leaves when the doctors arrive where Eddie is quite cold to them but he does agree to be part of their experimental treatment. 
And then as the synopsis states, Malcolm ends up expressing his love for Winifred. When she politely declines him, though, he gets upset and switches the DNA injections. And then the side effects are disastrous as Eddie becomes a monstrous creature that the title of the movie is of Blackenstein. And then he goes and rampages around the area near the mansion. And then the cops are called in to figure out what is going on here. Now, this is something kind of interesting is that this is a fun update to the original Frankenstein movie. I dig that we have Dr. Winifred Walker and Malcolm, you know, having some pretty important roles here. I do find it interesting, though, that this, that there's a Dr. Stein who is white in this black exploitation movie, though, as being the most prominent scientist here. Usually in these type of movies, this would actually be played by, you know, somebody who is black. But for whatever reason, like I said, they don't have that being the case. And it's also interesting that we have the villain here being the black assistant. And, you know, usually these are the two things that would be reversed. But I will give them credit here for being a little bit different. Now, something else I liked was that Eddie being somewhat of a hero. Not in the sense that he won medals, but he did serve in the military, which left him in the state that he's in. I love that the movie gives us this bitter orderly who is white, and he really sounds like a people I see on social media quite a bit right now. I really don't believe the story he's telling about him being, you know, physically fit, and but I just think that he was deemed unfit to serve, so he just that's why he's so bitter is that he wasn't in the great shape that he thought. He also gets his just punishment later in the movie as well. There's also kind of an interesting thing here where for most of this, we're getting Blackenstein as he's running amok in the area around the mansion. It is interesting, though, that the first two couples that he comes in contact and attacks are white. Now, most of the attacks are also on white women. This does come off quite a bit racist for the movie, and I have a feeling the attack outside of the nightclub was to help offset this. I personally don't mind it, as the neighborhood that Dr. Stein is living in, this is probably going to be the more of the people that he runs into, so it makes more sense for the people that he's being attacked. Now, I should briefly talk here about the effects. Blackenstein really comes off looking very similar to Boris Karloff's take on the monster. The only thing that is kind of confusing, though, is that when he changes, he has this outfit that looks, you know, just like from that original movie. Now, where did he get this, though, and, like, where did he change? Now, they did go practical with the effects. I think a bit more blood could have made, you know, there for realism. But what we do looks fine. When Eddie is supposed to be just a torso and head, it's kind of funny as it's just him underneath a blanket, and they just focus on him from the shoulders up. Now you could tell as I said that he's normal underneath there when we get more like wider shots. Uh, the computer effects were pretty weak to be honest. The cinematography was fine for the most part. I just got to know that they constantly went to these establishing shots of the mansion exterior. It just feels like it was there for padding. As for the acting, I thought Hart was solid as Dr. Stein. He doesn't really add a whole lot with his performance, but he does look like the character. I like Stone though. She gives some good emotion and we briefly get to see her topless. And she does well at being this you know young doctor who has ambition and everything like that disu is pretty stoic as well it does work that he's depressed from his plight it also makes it hard for me to feel bad for him because we don't ever really get to kind of see a softer side of him and then he becomes a monster jackson plays the brooding villain well and he doesn't really stand out and i thought the rest of the cast was fine and there isn't much really to say about the soundtrack or the score here i like that they made the decision to play more soulful music throughout as it fits you know this black exploitation type film what I really want to give credit here, though, is the nightclub singer of Cardella Di Milo. She had a great voice, and the joke that the comedian there of Andy C actually, you know, made me crack up. So, like I said, this is kind of a fun update to black exploitation style of film. And I've already kind of went over everything that I, you know, liked and kind of disliked about this movie. And this movie, though, was a bit a below average for me. So I had to come in with a 4.5 out of 10 just for some of the reasons that I've gone through here.
And then next for you, I have Fears of the Dark from 2007. This goes by the original title, Pierce du Noir. This has quite a few people involved with it because this is a anthology film. So we have, this is directed by amongst Blutch, Charles Burns, Marie Kelly, Pierre Di Sculio, Lorenzo Matati, Richard McGuire, and then the writing credits go to Blutch, Charles Burns, Pierre Di Solo, Jerry Kramsky, Richard McGuire, Michael Pierce, and Romain Scolobi. And then this stars Ara Atika, Guillaume Di Pardu, and Nicole Garcia. Now those are just their voices in this because this is animated as well. And as I was saying, this is an animation horror mystery film from France that is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being several scary black and white animated segments in different styles appeal to our fears of the dark. Now, this is an interesting film that I'd never actually heard of. It was being shown by the Fright Club podcast of the Gateway Film Center. Since I love to support these events and the theater itself, I decided to check it out. And then aside from that, I came in pretty blind to this movie. Now, since this is an anthology film, I'm going to break down each segment very briefly here and just, you know, keep my thoughts in line that way. The first set we get is that it's broken up into sections that are, you know, given to us. There is a more traditional looking drawing that is animated. And this first one that I was trying to say here that is broken up into the sections and given in between other shorts is involving an old man with angry dogs. He continues to unleash these on victims until he only has the one left, and it is only then does he get his just punishment. Now, this really sets the tone for the movie for me and what it's going to be going for. The artwork was amazing, and it looks to be done with pencil. It looks pretty lifelike, and especially since we're seeing this old man holding the leashes as these dogs, you know, tug at him. He is dressed as like colonial United States or Victorian England, but this guy is really a horrible person as he lets loose his animals on a boy with black eyes, which was creepy as well, a construction worker while his co-workers just watch on as he is, you know, attacked, and then a woman who is dancing. But these get more and more brutal as they go. Then the next segment is following a tale of Eric, who is voiced by Depardieu. Now he's an older man who wakes in pain and then tells us his story. He was a pretty intelligent child that had a thirst for you know science and knowledge and he loved kind of looking at insects but what ends up happening is he finds this weird one that looks similar to like a praying mantis and it's very human-like he brings it home in a jar and it ends up escaping and he never sees it again but then his bed periodically would make these noises that the insect would make and it haunts him and then something very creepy happens when he meets a laura who is voiced by atika who's a beautiful young woman and the two of them hit it off and she comes back to his place and then something pretty creepy happens as he notices a cut on her forearm that is quite deep and then some interesting changes that come over her and lead them down a dark path now this one i believe was done with computers but that's not to diminish what they did here as it does look really good i love the care that they took into making this insect and then as i was always as i was also saying it's very human-like and my immediate thought was that you know a praying mantis would fit the bill there and I like where the story takes us as one of my favorite things here for sure is that Eric is a tragic character who has isolated himself due to his interests and now he's lonely. When someone like Laura comes along, he's desperate to make it work. And there's also this weird connection that he doesn't want to lose this creature that he has befriended as a boy. And then this is, you know, what takes us down a path of sadness and depression. And the next tale was one I kind of had struggle keeping my interest for whatever reason. 
but it starts off with a murder that the police are investigating. We then have this girl who is going to a doctor as she moves to rural Japan where she is bullied by kids at school. And part of what she's bullied by is that her family lives next to a cemetery where there's a samurai buried there. And this doctor that she ends up going to wants her to face her nightmares into its conclusion. But the question ends up being, are these really nightmares or reality? I really like the drawings here as well, which I should probably just say now. I liked all of the drawings for just various different reasons. This one, I believe, was also done with computers. It has a lot of Asian influence, and this is the only one that has color in it. As I, does, I believe it does have the color red in it at a few different spots. But this is, I feel like, an idea of facing our demons and what really could be happening here. And those things kind of what ticks my box here. But like I said, for whatever reason, I lost interest in this one. And I do want to revisit this to kind of see what my thoughts would be, you know, with a second viewing there. The next one is a man telling his past where he lived in France as a child. He had befriended this orphan boy who's quite strange, who claims that his uncle was mauled by a beast from the sky. So a great hunter is called in to kill whatever is doing this. And the truth might be much darker than we realized. Now, this one is more done a kind of what you'd see in like Popeye the Sailor Man and Looney Tunes or even like early Disney where the bodies of everybody isn't necessarily proportionate to real life because this hunter definitely has a much bigger upper body and like shoulders and everything to his legs this one kind of plays out pretty interestingly I kind of like where everything goes in the end but this is another one that I had trouble kind of focusing on and the last one was probably one of my favorites as well, where we have a man who gets lost in a blizzard. He breaks into a house to seek refuge. This house has a dark past that he discovers through a photo album, which causes him to have a nightmare and ultimately gets trapped inside of a closet. The question is, though, is he alone and can he escape? What I like about this one is this is another one I feel like is done with animation in that it's mostly a black frame that we are using whatever we're supposed to focus on is in white and i think that's kind of a cool thing to play with here because not everything that we're seeing is able to you can't focus on the whole room itself you just get to see what they want you to see and i think the soundtrack works well here the guy is exhausted and drinking so it makes him an unreliable narrator which is something else that i also kind of enjoy and then for whatever reason this one pulled me in and i liked how they presented it and the last kind of thing that I didn't really kind of touch on would be the wraparound, which is really just geometric shapes. And we get to hear a woman, I believe, confessing to like a doctor about her fears, anxieties, and what causes them sadness. Now, this is just kind of creepy with how the, the shapes are moving and changing. And I feel like they're fitting definitely to what things are being said on the screen. And it's just kind of scary how what you can connect with with this character and just some of the darker things that is being said. So this is really just an interesting animated anthology. I don't really want to delve too much into some of these things. And this is one that I feel like the one viewing that I've had so far isn't enough. Glad that I did get to see it on the big screen though at the Gateway Film Center. I would recommend this one. I will warn you though, this is in French and there's not a whole lot of dialogue. So it's not like you have to read a ton of subtitles. But I thought this was a above average film that's borderline on being good. And I came in with a 7.5 out of 10 on this viewing. And then to continue on with these movie challenges, I watched The Witch Who Came From the Sea from 1976. This is directed by Matt Simber. It was written by Robert Thom. It stars Millie Perkins, Lonnie Chapman, and Vanessa Brown. This is a drama horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a disturbed woman is haunted by memories of childhood abuse which culminates in a murder spree. 
Now, for this movie, like I said, this is another one that I'd never heard of, but it appeared on one of the October movie challenges I'm participating in. It was a bonus watch that could not be used for other categories. The name struck me as it feels like the era it came from, the 1970s, where they would have some just great titles in general. Now, this movie is weird to say the least, you know, as an understatement. Now, we start off with Molly, who is Perkins, and she's with her two nephews at the beach. Now, one is Tad, who is Jean-Pierre Camps, and then we have Tripoli, who is Mark Livingston. Her attention is drawn to a few bodybuilders who are working out nearby. Now, she starts getting these violent images of them being dead in bloody fashion. Then she takes two boys home to their mother of Kathy. Now, it's here that we start to realize that Molly might be an unreliable narrator. Now, Molly works at a bar where Kathy is on welfare and does sewing jobs on the side for some people in the area. The children like Molly better because she believes in more like fairy tale look at life. Molly is convinced their father was a great sea captain where Kathy brings her back to earth that he was a no good drunk who did bad things. Molly can't handle the stress and this drives her to drink. While there she also does watch football with the boys as well. Now the movie then takes a very surreal scene where Molly is in a room with Sam Walters who is Gene Rutherford who is the quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams according to this movie and then his favorite receiver is Austin Slade of Jim Sims and he's also in this room with Molly. It appears to be start of a drug induced sexual encounter but Molly ends up tying them up and things go crazy. Now as I was saying she works at a bar where that is run by Long John who is Lonnie Chapman. There seems to be an open relationship of sort between the two. Now, he's an older and laid-back guy who just really seems to enjoy life, and Molly seems to just enjoy him as well. Now, Molly is very intrigued by this commercial that features shaving, and it stars Alexander McPeak, who is Stafford Morgan. Now, she's even more intrigued when she meets him at a party thrown by a retired actor of Billy Bat, who is Rick Jason. He's not being used to told, being told no, and Molly makes him regret that. And then it's soon after we learn that this murder of the football players really did happen. This sends Molly into a spiral that continues her to heavily drink and does some other things that she normally wouldn't. And then to make things even more complicated, there are two detectives of Beardsley, who is Richard Kennedy, and Detective Stone, who is George Buckflower, who starts to investigate into what happened to them. And then it becomes a question of, is Molly unstable enough to kill these players or is there something else going on here? Now, this movie is quite weird. I don't necessarily go as far to say that it's an art house film per se, but it is pretty close to that. There are just some surreal feelings that we get for some of the scenes that we were seeing, and I wasn't completely sure what was real or what wasn't. The movie does a really good job at giving us aspects of Molly's life. She is unreliable to know what is real and what's not, and especially a lot of this comes from the fact that she drinks as heavily as she does, and that she's also doing you know drugs on top of that as well. Some of my initial impressions here were, were any of these events actually happening or was Molly just crazy? Now I had an idea from what Kathy was saying, all the things on the beach about their father weren't necessarily true. It would seem that Molly is living in denial. The first couple of scenes of young Molly who is Verkina Flower and her father who is portrayed by John F. Goff was that he molested her. At least that's what I picked up on. It reminded me a lot of what Stephen King put into Gerald's game actually. After the first deaths, I wasn't sure if this was, you know, I wasn't sure if she made them happen or if she actually did them. This is an interesting way to present this because at first we get to hear what she says and then Kathy giving her the closer to the truth. And I like seeing the images of the dead bodybuilders first to help, you know, drive this home of what's real and what's not. 
Now, these people all live in a poorer neighborhood. We have Kathy on welfare. Molly is working in a CD bar, but we're not that far from L.A. Billy has a bit of money, and I get the impression that he lives like a king around the area because of it. Now, Long John seems to make enough money to get by. Molly is an alcoholic, and I think that is a bit of a way that she's controlled here. It is hard to, you know, believe what she could be doing these things that are being done. Another waitress of Doris, who is Peggy Fuhrer, makes some highly inappropriate comments that are quite offensive about who she thinks is behind it. I can't come down too hard when this movie came out, though, so, like, what she does say there. Now, also, I do like what they do with some of these visions that Molly has is that they play around with them quite a bit where they're very art house in nature is that colors are kind of inverted and things of that nature which does give this movie a very surreal feel and then the amount of drugs that are being done on top of that is you know pretty interesting as well and then going along with that is there Molly has these deep-seated issues this culminates in her getting a tattoo on her chest which she regrets later on and at first she said it's some horrible thing to do and the reason being is why she does it is pretty heartbreaking and makes a lot of sense as to what they're getting at and I don't know if this would work as well if you know she doesn't play this character as well as she does she plays drunk and drugged very well and she can also change her emotion at will which makes her even more unstable now aside from her performance I think the rest of the cast is fine in support uh chapman is interesting as the older bartender who takes care about you know molly and he doesn't really he isn't really equipped though to help her like she needs the same could be said for fury even though she has some horrible belief system brown i feel bad for her she just really you know wants the best for her children but she can't seem to you know get out of the system because she's lived in it her whole life and doesn't know a way out camps and livingston are fine they don't really add a whole lot I would say that Jason, Morgan, Kennedy, and the rest were fine in support, and it was fun to see a cameo by Flower, and I guess he did the casting for this as well, which is pretty cool. I do think that some issues going back to some of the effects here, the the blood's a bit watery. I am glad that they went practical with the effects, though, as that's a pretty good thing to play with there. I think the soundtrack is synced up well to give off an eerie vibe that isn't being overpowering. Now, this movie... I do really need to give this one a second viewing. I might have started a little bit too late. I think there's some really good aspects to it and some really interesting things with the story. I do have some slight issues that the movie felt a bit boring and it was hard to follow at some times, but it's not bad by any stretch. And my rating here is coming in at a 6 out of 10 on this movie. And then I end up watching Demons from 1985. This is directed by Lamberto Bava, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Dario Argento, Dardano Schicchetti, and Franco Friari and Sacchetti also came up with the original story here. This is starring Urbano Barbini, Natasha Hovi, and Carl Zinni. This is a horror film from Italy that is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a group of random people are invited to a screening of a mysterious movie only to find themselves trapped in the theater with ravenous demons. Now this is a film that I have a lot of nostalgia for. My father told my sister and I that he saw a trailer for it and then really wanted to see it so when he found a VHS randomly somewhere he bought it. He then pretty much gave it to us as we would watch this pretty regularly growing up and I'll be honest this one both grossed me out and terrified me as a child and it had been a while since I had saw it with a critical eye and I ended up giving it another viewing as part of a horror movie challenge where I needed a movie with a movie theater in it and then Jamie also braved this movie with me. And so I'm going to try not to gush or come down too hard on this movie because I have seen this one so much that, you know, there is that nostalgia factor and whatnot. 
Now for this, we start with a young woman who's on a train in West Berlin, and her name is Cheryl, and she's portrayed by Hovey. Now she seems a little bit nervous of those around her, and she also thinks that she sees someone with a disfigured face as a reflection in the window behind her. The train comes to the station where she hears someone walking toward her. She runs and we see a pair of boots, and then she ends up coming face to face with this person who is portrayed by Mikkel Sauve. And then half of his face is metal and it almost seems like there's a mask that is attached to it. Now he hands her a ticket for entry to a film later that day. He then gives some to others as we see this is a promotional type thing and she comes up to him asking for another for her friend who is waiting. Now her friend is Kathy who is portrayed by Paula Kozo and the two of them decide to ditch class and go to this movie and Kathy agrees. Now they arrive to other people filing in. There's Ingrid, who is Nicolette Elmi, is the usherette taking the tickets for admittance. Now there are two guys who also show up of George, who is Barbini, and Ken, who is Zinni. Now they immediately take notice of the two young women. Also in attendance is a young couple of Hannah, who is Fiore Argento, and her boyfriend of Tommy, who is Guido Baldi. And then there's a married couple that don't seem really to get along anymore of Frank, who is... Stelio Candeli and Ruth, who is Nicole Tessery. Then there's also a pimp named Tony, of portrayed by Bobby Rhodes, along with his two ladies of Carmen, who is Fabiola Talato, and Rosemary, who is Greta Greta. And then we also have a blind man of Werner, who is Alex Sarah, and he is there with, I'm assuming, is his daughter of Liz, who is Sally Day. Now, what ends up happening here is that we have Rosemary who puts on this mask in the lobby and it scratches her cheek. Now while they're watching the movie, the same exact thing happens. And much like in the movie, Rosemary becomes a demon, attacks her friend of Carmen, and then this starts to spread as they find out they're trapped inside of this movie theater. Now to preface this, I was really nervous how this would hold up and how Jamie would take it. Now, she did have her issues, as there are some inconsistencies and logic problems. Now, she doesn't have a whole lot of history with Italian cinema, so I did try to explain that. But I do agree that there are some things that there are issues with the movie. Now, what I like about this is that we kind of have an early meta type thing here, where we're having the movie is mimicking things that are happening in the film that they're watching. Now, I dig that aspect of the movie. I even like combining the persona of Nostradamus with things that he did predict, and then the idea that this mask would spread the demonic presence. Now this is kind of interesting is this is a early precursor to things like Wreck or 28 Days Later or even some of those more fast running zombie movies. The scratch can transmit, you know, this virus of possession and that is terrifying to me for sure. These creatures are quite vile and use whatever they can to kill someone which is also quite terrifying. I do need to bring up some inconsistencies here though. I think George gets scratched and nothing happens to him. Ken and Carmen get scratched and they change pretty quickly, but then someone like Werner gets violently attacked, but it takes him quite a while to finally change. I'm on board that some people handle infections differently. I just think that they don't have a complete understanding of the infection here. Now, again, this is Italy, so they do kind of, you know, throw logic out the window sometimes to make kind of cool things to see, so I think that's kind of what we're getting here. I do like the look of the demons, though. I love for the most part that they have long, nasty fingernails, their teeth are fang-like, and there are some cool practical effects done with the eyes and then blacking out the teeth if need be. Their skin also takes on a greenish hue, which you can see the veins which are darkened, and this is pretty unnerving. The gore does look good aside from some slight issues, as there are times where I feel like they needed much more blood to be there for realism, but I think the cinematography is well done, they do some cool things with lights, and I also like the practical effects of making the demon's eyes glow. Kind of some other logic issues. There's one point where Cheryl and the others blame the movie that they were watching. I'm not sure why they would come to this conclusion, but I can allow it due to panic. And it feels like something you'd get from like the mist where, you know, the stress of the situation can cause things. 
I don't buy that the building could have been bricked up as fast as it is. And there is a bit of a supernatural element at times. It just feels like it's there for convenience factors. And then there's also this helicopter thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. And I'm also not sure why there's a samurai ninja on the dirt bike in the lobby, aside from the cool action sequence later on that comes from that. Again, I've seen enough Italian films to know the logic. Sometimes take a backseat to cool shots or sequences, but I still had to feel like I needed to bring it up here. thought the acting was fine across the board. I think Barbini is good as our hero. Hovey doesn't add a whole lot here in this like kind of final girl role that she's in. I thought the rest of the people, though, are fine to give us an array of different characters, as they're all distinct, but I'm not saying that any of them would win awards. And they do play people being possessed by demons well enough for me, and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. Really, the last thing I wanted to go over here would be the soundtrack. I love the opening theme and think that Claudio Simonetti does some great things with the score throughout. I also think this movie got some popular rock group songs from the era, and they are featured at different places throughout. Now, this is the soundtrack that I remember throughout the years of seeing it, and one that I will listen to when I'm writing for that vibe that it gets. So, like I said, I get that there's flaws, yet I still enjoy it. It's a fun movie with a scary concept, and I like the... You know, taking the idea of possession and kind of mixing it with an early kind of infection zombie type film where we're featuring, you know, possessed people that can move around fast. They don't really look at the religious angle, which I think is an interesting way to take it. I, again, think there's some slight issues with logic, story uh, elements, and some of the effects. But overall, I think this is an entertaining movie and rate this as one that I think some nostalgia is kicking in here a little bit. But I still think this is an 8 out of 10. And I also watched Resident Evil Apocalypse from 2004. This is directed by Alexander Witt. It is written by Paul W.S. Anderson. This stars Mila Jokovic, Sienna Guillory, and Eric Mabus. And that last one's a little bit more of archive footage, though, just to be aware on that. And this is an action horror sci-fi thriller that is a co-production between a lot of different countries of Germany, France, United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States. It is currently sitting on a... 6.2 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being Alice wakes up in Raccoon City Hospital after the area has been overrun by zombies and now must make it out of the city before a nuclear bomb is dropped. This is a film that I do have to say I really liked when it first came out. I'm pretty sure that I saw this in the theaters with my family and then went again with my friends. And this is another one that I picked up pretty quickly when it came out on DVD and have watched it, you know, throughout the years. Again, this is one that I wasn't hadn't seen in some time so I wasn't sure if it with a critical eye if I was going to hold up or not for me now just kind of filling a little bit more information here is that we first get this off with our main character of Alice and she kind of fills us in the backstory of what happened in the previous film as well as about her and then we also get a cool image of you know paying homage to Day of the Dead when you know she finally gets out of the hospital as well now, it does shift over to Raccoon City, where we're getting a taste of the daily life there, and it feels like a normal Midwestern city, but then we're taken below ground to the entrance of the hive. Umbrella employees are opening up, and they're overtaken by infected people and creatures. The T-virus spreads out into the city. Umbrella sends in SUVs to collect important scientists that are living there. Now, one of them is Dr. Ashford, who is Jared Harris. He's concerned about his daughter and is informed that she's being picked up as well. We get to see, though, that his daughter of Angela, who is Sophie Vafasir, ends up getting in a car accident and is left stranded. We also get to meet Jill Valentine, who is Guillory. 
She enters her home and overhears on the scanner of what is happening. We get a cool introduction through a board that she has been suspended, and she's actually a STARS team member. Now, she goes to her station where she kills all the zombies that are inside of there as the police are trying to put them into custody. And then it's at this point as well that she frees LJ, who is Mike Epps, who is in custody currently. Now, the person in charge from Umbrella is Major Kane, who is Thomas Kreischman. Now, he makes a decision that the city is to be, you know, completely sealed off. Dr. Ashford tries to find someone alive in the city to help get Angie out as he does hack into the closed circuit footage there and is able to, you know, use different phones and whatnot like that. Now, Alice ends up going to an Army-Navy surplus store, gets dressed and finds some weapons. She then encounters Jill Sergeant Peyton Wells, who is Raska Adanti, and some other survivors. They band together and learn of their way out through Dr. Ashford, and this takes them to the junior high where they have to, you know, eliminate some other threats. And then we see there's something much more dangerous as well. Also in the city is a group of Umbrella paramilitary members. They're led by Carlos Oliveira, who is Oded Fur. And then with him is Nikolai Jivanov, who is Zach Ward, and Yuri Longanova, who is Stefan Hayes. They're bitter about not being evacuated and are all ready to turn their backs on the company that stranded them inside the city limits. Now this, of course, is taking on the games of Resident Evil 2 and 3, where the infection has gotten out and our survivors are trying to get out of town before Raccoon City is contained and wiped out. I dig that they brought in Jill, Carlos, Dr. Ashford, Nemesis, who in this is portrayed by Matthew G. Taylor, and Nikolai. And they also bring in the unit of stars as well. They aren't necessarily the characters from the game, but at least they're hitting the nerd part of me to at least have characters with those names. And I do have to comment that I hate that they use the outfit that Jill wears in Resident Evil 3, as it's just not very practical. What I do like here, though, is that we still have that contained feel that we get from the previous film. It's just in a bigger sandbox to play in. It is this time around that I notice that we really aren't getting a whole lot of zombies. There's some of that, and most of it's more early on before we get to some of the stronger villains. The main problem with the story works for me as well umbrella is constantly making bad decisions that they need to fix and they also seem to be a bit overconfident i also like the idea that the nemesis project is focusing on alice and nemesis there are two sides to the coin where one is smaller and more agile to the bulkier and stronger one the showdown is inevitable this does pigeonhole it into the action horror film that it is i thought the acting was good jokovic i think is really good as our heroine here she is just this is one of the roles that i think of when i see her and she just embodies the character of alice Guillory wasn't who I pictured at first as Jill, but I think she does good there. Fear is good as Carlos. I really like Kreischman as the villain. He is spineless, but that fits, and we don't get to see that until the end when he's uh, powerless. I would say that the rest of the cast is fine for what was needed. I do really like seeing Harris as he's an underrated actor to me. Epps is, you know, good for, you know, his more comedic value. I think Taylor fits for what was needed as Nemesis with his size. I also like the small cameo by Ian Glenn, which will end up growing into a much bigger role for Dr. Isaacs. I think the effects and cinematography are okay. I was really surprised, though, that the zombies all look good, which I was expecting that. The CGI for the liquors here are much better. But the problem that I have come from the action effects, I think sometimes with the cinematography, they decided to go with this blurry effect, and some of that camera work just didn't work for me, and it took me out of what I was seeing. Now, some of the CGI there also doesn't necessarily hold up. So I would say this is one of the better video game adaptation horror movies out there for me. I like what they're doing with the concept here, and you know this is the next logical step from the previous film. Resident Evil 2 is my favorite of the series, so combining that with 3, which takes place at the same time, works. 
And I also like, you know, bringing in characters from the game is that tick my nerd box, even if they're not necessarily the same ones from the games themselves. Now, some of the action and effects work, but there are some that I have some slight issues with. So, like, overall, I would just say that this is a fun movie, and it's above average for me overall. Now, this did come down from my last viewing of this, as I'm now sitting on a 7.5 out of 10 for this one. And for my next film, this one's a little bit of, I guess, a controversial one. But I feel like this falls necessarily a horror enough to be on here, and that is The Night of the Hunter from 1955. This is directed by Charles Lawton. This is written from the novel by Davis Grubb and the screenplay by James Aggie. This stars Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winters, and Lillian Gish. This is a crime drama film noir thriller is what it's listed on on the IMDb. And it is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 8.0 on IMDb and a 4.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a religious fanatic marries a gullible widow whose young children are reluctant to tell him where their real daddy hid the $10,000 he'd stolen in a robbery. Now this is a film that when I heard that it was playing at my local theater of the Gateway Film Center as part of its Horror 101 series, it intrigued me. I originally thought I hadn't seen it, but then when I went on the IMDb, I had rated it, but it had been a while. Then the other thing was I was debating if this was horror or not. Now, upon this viewing, I've decided that it's horror enough, and I'll get into that later. And I also gave it another viewing here as an October movie challenge for the highest rated horror film that I could find from the 1950s. Now, this one is we're following a Reverend Harry Powell, who is Mitchum. Now, he's driving a stolen car, and he gets busted for it. And it is during this meeting with him that we learn he's a religious man, he has been married a few times, and he has murdered and robbed all of those women. He believes that God has put him here to spread the word, and he also has love tattooed on his, the knuckles of his right hand and hate tattooed on the left, and he carries a switchblade. Now we get to meet another family here where we have Ben Harper, who is Peter Graves. Now the police are after him as he stole some money in a robbery. Now he makes his son of John, who is Billy Chapin, and his daughter of Pearl, who is Sally Jane Bruce, promise that they won't tell anyone where he's hiding the money, including their mother of Willa, who is Shelley Winters. The police arrive and they take him into custody, and it just so happens that Ben ends up being cellmates with Harry, and he knows about the stolen money. Now he tries to get Ben to tell him where it's hidden through talking to him in his sleep, now this upsets Ben to the point where he actually strikes him and then his sentence is carried out before Harry can figure it out and Ben is executed by hanging and then once Harry gets out of prison he ends up seeking out Willa and ends up marrying her just so he can get close to her as well as to the children to find out where the money is hidden but the problem is that John doesn't like Harry from the beginning and won't allow his younger sister to tell him where the money is hidden as she starts to kind of warm up to him. But Harry will stop at nothing to get to this, which includes even murdering their mother. Now, that's where I want to leave everything for this movie here. As I feel like, you know, there's a lot more that I end up getting out of it these last two viewings that I've had of it. To start this off here, I do really find it intriguing that Harry is a religious man like he claims. It does feel like he's taking advantage of it, and he really only seems to follow the Old Testament, where he justifies his horrible acts that he does because of that section of the Bible can be quite brutal. And he believes he can do whatever he's doing because he's doing it in the name of God. 
And he also brainwashes Willa, but she also seems like a weak woman that is easy to influence. I think part of this is the time period, as we're in the Great Depression, where women were supposed to be subservient to their husbands. Now, since he's a man of God, everyone in town also falls in love with him. With how things play out in the end is great for this, and how the mob mentality can also take over. And it's really only John, and then finally Pearl, that who can see his real side. I personally don't really consider this horror, but I think it's close enough and has enough elements to fall into that adjacent category. With how vicious this character is, he really does kind of seem like something you'd get more akin to like the Max Cady character in the Cape Fair remake, which is kind of funny is that Mitchum was the, that character in the original version of it. He's relentless in his pursuit of these children, and which would be scary way to live. And this is really unnerving of how we, he can never seem to get away from him. And there's always that impending sense of doom. And going along with this, there's that dread of this religious song that he is singing. And you could hear it even when he's far off with how well his voice carries. I used to have an issue with the pacing, but after these last two viewings, I really don't have that anymore. I think the setup is great and how creepy that can be. But it's really what I used to get a little bit bored with is the when the two children are going downriver and they end up meeting Rachel Cooper, who is portrayed by Gish. I end up seeing that this is important just to see how hard life is during this time and how great Rachel actually takes care of them. I think the acting is good. Mitchum is such a great villain and is perfect for the role. I would say this is one of his more iconic roles and I really thought he does a great job here. I think Winters does a solid job as well. She's trying to be a good mother but she really is just in over her head and when someone like Harry comes around she loses herself. It is similar to people that I know in real life. Gish is good as well as his protective role. She portrays a good mother in that she is stern, but she can do whatever she can for the children. I thought Chapin and Bruce were both fine. I do find Bruce to be quite adorable in this role here. I think everybody else kind of rounded this out for what was needed. And it's fun to see Graves in such a smaller role as he goes on to be you know, such a prominent actor. Not really a whole lot in the way of effects, but I think what they do with this one background where we can see Harry riding a horse while the children are trying to sleep and it's in the distance. That was kind of creepy that they did there. I think that showing us Willa in the car at the bottom of the pond was creepy. And aside from that, I think we have some good cinematography for the era. Uh, the soundtrack really doesn't necessarily stand out, but that song that he is constantly singing, I'm really, that gets under my skin. And we also have this really interesting scene as well where there's a duality where Rachel is also singing it and they're kind of doing a duet. That really worked well for me in that scene. And then kind of one thing I wanted to go back to the effects, we do get these animal sequences where we get to see a owl hunting a rabbit. And I really think that's a great representation and allegory for what Harry does in this movie. So this one, like I said, ticks some of my boxes here where we have a horrible and terrifying man who is using religious to justify the horrible crimes that he's committing. We have some good acting and... I think the cinematography is well done. This is just one of, you know, a classic film for sure. I will warn you, this is from the 50s and is black and white. So if that's an issue, I would say to avoid this one. But if you can, you know, get around that, this is definitely worth your time. And I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this viewing of the movie. Now, one that's not very controversial and one of my favorite movies of all time, I watched Day of the Dead from 1985. This is written and directed by George A. Romero. This is starring Lori Cardill. Terry Alexander and Joseph Plato. This is a horror thriller from the United States that is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis here being a small group of military officers and scientists dwell in an underground bunker as the world above is overrun by zombies. Now this is a film that was another of my 
staples of my childhood, even though it really took me to get older to finally, you know, fully appreciate it. This one is in a steady rotation for me along with its predecessor and my favorite horror film of all time, Dawn of the Dead. I'll try not to gush too much here, but this movie we are following Sarah, who is Cardell, as we get a dream sequence to start this off, but then we are in a helicopter flown by John, who is Terry Alexander, and then his co-pilot and communications guy is McDermott, who is Jarleth Conroy, and then there's also a soldier of Miguel, who is Anthony D'Lo Jr. Now... They are flying over the biggest town or city in their area, and they're not able to raise anybody on the radio, so Sarah wants to set down to, you know, give every opportunity to make sure that there aren't anybody, you know, survivors around here, but the only problem is that they're defeated when they only attract the undead and return to their base. Now, this is an underground bunker. Sarah scolds everyone and tells them that they need to stay underground during the day because it agitates the zombies when they can see them moving around. Now, we also learned that the military officer in charge has died while they were out. Now, as they go back below, we meet two soldiers of the Loudmouth, who is Steel, who is Gary Howard Clark, and with him is Rickles, who is Ralph Mario. Now, they want Miguel to help them to collect some specimens, but Sarah tries to step in to say that he needs some rest as he's about to break as he's been up for a while. Now, they tell her that they he's coming and they don't have enough manpower to spare him. So Sarah looks to John or McDermott to go instead, but they don't say anything. So she ends up going and Miguel doesn't want to look bad, so he does as well. Now, with a turn of events here, Miguel ends up dropping the pole and Rickles is almost bit. And then Steel takes his out on him, even though Sarah tried to prevent this. And then we get to meet the guy in charge, who is Rhodes, who is portrayed by Plato. Now, he's not as nice as his predecessor and thinks that the scientists are just wasting their time and resources. Now, he calls for a meeting later that day, and we already get to see that Sarah is bumping heads with him, but she knows that she can't rock the boat too much. Now, there are some like other scientists and soldiers down here, but the one in charge of the scientists would be Logan, who is Richard Liberty. He has a new line of experiments that he's trying to do in a way to prevent the zombies from wanting to eat them, but Sarah points out that it takes too many resources and that few can perform it. Now, his other way is just to flat out train them. He is doing some shady practices in his lab that could all put them in danger as the soldiers are dangerously close to taking over this operation completely. Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap here. And I should point out, by everything this movie does, it should be my favorite. I love the dark outlook this movie has. And then the world has ended and it is post-apocalyptic. And we're also seeing one of you know the last places that are still going. The soldiers are close to breaking and without a chain of command to prevent them, we see what they would do. Now, this ticks a lot of my boxes, which is why it should be my favorite, but I still prefer, prefer Dawn for whatever reason. Now, the soldiers really have all the power here. They have the training and the weaponry to really just run things. The problem, though, is that Rhodes isn't smart. He can be out-talked by Logan, who is just smarter than him. Now, there are some hope left, even though it doesn't want to show it. Now, they just need something to keep them at bay. Rhodes is really on edge, though, and he has Steel and Rickles there to help him if a coup is needed. The scientists seem to be doing what they can, though. They don't have the proper resources, so some of their experiments are tainted. When Sarah or Ted Fisher, who is John Amplis, tries to relay this, Rhodes doesn't want to hear any of it. What is really scary here, though, is that they're legitimately seeing that this is, you know, the real world now. If you don't have strong leadership, things fall apart. Rhodes is vicious, and it, but he's a bad leader. He's a soldier that you want when things are bad, just not leading you. Now, there's also the characters of John and McDermott. John really puts it best when he's talking to Sarah at their place. He doesn't see the point of what they're doing. They have all the records and history down here, but what does it matter? The world has ended, and the humans are saving this stuff that if they can fix it, 
the world can be restored. Why would we want to restore the world to what it was, though? This outbreak is showing that it didn't work. This is an interesting look at what we're doing now. As I'm a firm believer in humanity doesn't adapt, we could be at trouble for sure. John is a bit more nihilistic than I am, which is kind of shocking, but thinking that we should just live out our days in enjoyment is what John really thinks they should do. What I'm doing writing this review would be pointless in his eyes, even though I enjoy doing it and it gives me purpose no matter how small or insignificant that is. I think the acting is good. It's a bunch of people you probably won't see anywhere else, but I think that they are really good in these roles. Cardo plays a strong woman character that is holding things together as best she can, but we see that she is stressed though and that can't keep us up forever. Alexander is really good as well as Conroy. They bring their own type of comedy for me. Plato is a jerk military guy and he does this so well. And I like how he plays off the others, especially Clar and Marino as his henchmen. Dilio, I think, does a great job at someone who is exhausted and close to cracking. And then outside of that, Liberty does an amazing job as Logan. I love later in the movie that we see he's broken mentally but does everything he's doing to hide it. Then there's Sherman Howard as Bub, the zombie that's being trained. He plays this so well and even showing emotion. The rest of the soldiers and zombie rounded this out for what was needed. As for the effects, this is some of Tom Savini's best work for sure. The issues that he had with the zombies are fixed here. They're still blue, but they should be. This is what would happen when the skin you know, has without blood flow. And there are many distinct looking ones. The blood and gore that we get is good. And this is just a masterclass in what he can do with practical effects. And the cinematography is also well done. And the last thing would just be the soundtrack. This isn't as iconic for me as Dawn's score, but I love what Modern Man did with the music. John Harrison really did some amazing things that only fits, you know, this movie that we get. But it also is one of my favorite scores of all time, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. And this is one that I own and listen to regularly. So, as I said, this is probably the one that I should prefer, but I still go with Dawn, even though this is the best in the series. It's just a bleak outlook on the world that has ended and dealing with a mixture of you know fixing it and starting over and then the acting is just really good even though this is a zombie movie it is more about the characters trying to survive i love the social commentary that we get here the effects are on point and the soundtrack slash score fit for what was needed this is just as i said is bleak so keep that in mind before seeing this there are some gory effects so if that's an issue i would avoid this but this is an interesting movie to watch during a pandemic in my opinion and i think this is an all-time classic as well so I came in here with a 10 out of 10 on this movie, if you couldn't tell from everything that I was saying. And that is all I have for mini reviews this week. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. I'm very dizzy. I mean, I need to talk to a doctor right away. I just got here and I'm about to work a double. Someone expired in the ICU. Corner just left. I have another idea. Look at you taking initiative. I like my initiative too. This is good to go. Is this a joke? You lost thousands of dollars worth of organs. If I don't bring him a kidney, I'm dead. I can still get you a kidney. You kept all the organs inside. How dead are you? Perfect. Did you pour bleach down that man's throat? Yeah. What the hell did you do? Cops are coming here. 
I'm gonna tell him who did this. You killed an innocent man for no reason. I'm just gonna have to solve this problem myself. I'm not leaving till you give me a kidney. Why would you bring this cousin of yours into this if you knew she would kill people? I sometimes have too much faith in humanity. That is what I like about you. And for my first featured review here is going to be 12 Hour Shift. This is from 2020 and it is written and directed by Berea Grant. This stars Angela Bettis, David Arquette, Chloe Farnworth, Mick Foley, Kit Williamson, Nakia Gamby-Turner, Tara Perry, Brooke Segan, Dusty Warren, Tom Detrinas, Thomas Hobson, Julian Dowler, Brianna Lane, Taylor Alden, and Scott Dean. This is a comedy horror thriller from the United States that is currently sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, bodies start to pile up when a drug user nurse and her cousin try to find a replacement kidney for an organ trafficker. Now, this is a movie that I saw was being shown at the Gateway Film Center, but I ended up missing it because I had a busy weekend and it was only shown just for that one week. And then it popped up as well on a horror movie challenge that I'm doing here in October. So I made sure to give this a viewing as Jamie and I rented this on Amazon Prime Video. They kind of have these things where you can watch some films a little bit early and everything like that. And then I'm also obviously making this a featured review here. And then just to give a little bit more background information on the key players here... As a director, Bria Grant has seven credits to her name. This is the only horror feature. And then, but she did do a short last year entitled Megan 26. As a writer, she has eight credits. Now, she wrote the short that she also directed along with this movie. And also from this year, she wrote the film called Lucky. Now, she stars in that movie as well. And then the star here of Angela Bettis is quite the accomplished actress, especially in the genre. Now, she has a total of 45 acting credits, with the first in genre being Bless a Child from 2000, which I have seen. And then from there, she would go on to do May, which I just watched recently, along with... She's also was in the TV movie of Carrie as the title character. And then she was in the Toolbox Murders from 2004, an episode of Masters of Horror, and then in the movie The Woods to follow up from there. Now, she has done some other movies outside of the genre, as well as within, since I have seen her in things like The Woman... Girl Interrupted, The ABCs of Death, and even appearing on the TV show of Dexter. Now, David Arquette has been in a lot, and then coming from a very famous family. Now, he has 129 acting credits. The first was Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 1992, and then he was famously in the Scream series. But I've also seen him in Ravenous from 1999, Entourage, and Eli Roth's History of Horror. And then Chloe Farnworth has 47 credits as an actress. The first one in horror was in Dead Search from 2010. She seems to have bounced in and out of the genre. And the only other movie that I've seen her in was Thor The Dark World, where she was uncredited as an Asgardian waitress. Now for this movie, we start off with Mandy, who is Bettis, as she's talking with another nurse who is leaving her shift. Mandy is about to work a double, and she isn't necessarily looking forward to it. She is giving some backhanded compliments by the nurse who's leaving. And I think this is a good scene that we're, we get kind of the fact that Mandy doesn't really take crap from other people. The problem, though, is that she's a junkie. We learn that she's on probation for this, but it isn't stopping her from snorting items to get her through the night. Now, the charge nurse that she's working with 
that night is Karen, who is Nakia Gamby Turner. Now, working with them as well that night are Dorothy, who is Tara Perry, who is quite religious, and then Janet, who is Brooke Segan, who is, you know, kind of bossy, but doesn't really seem to have all that much power. But there's something going on in this hospital, though. Karen and Mandy are running a scheme where people die and they get the organs removed. And some of these people, they're actually killing them with bleach, but they're doing it in a way where nobody's really catching on. And then Mandy's cousin of Regina, who is Farnworth, shows up to collect the items. She isn't the brightest, and this is apparent when she removes the kidney from the cooler to put a couple of soda pops in it and never puts the organ back in. Now, she gallivants all throughout the night before going to see Nicholas, who is Mick Foley. Now, he's a local gangster who is running a scheme with organ trafficking. He's not happy to find the cooler empty aside from the pop, and then he gives her an ultimatum that she has one hour to bring the kidney back to him, or Nicholas is sending Mikey, who is Dustin Warren, out to get her. Now, Mandy is trying to just get through her shift, and there is an Alzheimer's patient that is there in a coma. Now, she sends the daughter away, not expecting, you know, the mother to wake up, and this allows Mandy to rummage through her things. Now, we also have a Mr. Kent, who is Tom Detrinas. Now, she gets him set up with dialysis, and then we also have Jefferson, who is Arquette, who is a local murderer, and he is there from prison. I don't necessarily know if they ever say what brought him into the hospital, but he is not feeling well. And then also Mandy's half-brother shows up with another apparent drug overdose. When Regina shows back up to tell Mandy that the kidney she was given is missing, things take a turn. They blame each other, and Regina is adamant that she just has to get another one. She creates a lot of problems that cause the police to show up, and it might jeopardize this whole operation that they have going on. It also becomes a problem when the antics going on allow Jefferson to get free from her his guard as well now that's where i want to leave my recap for this movie if i haven't pointed it out yet this movie is part comedy so some of these things that i'm relaying are done in a comedic fashion the first thing to go through though is the premise of this movie is really interesting i didn't state but this takes place in arkansas back in 1999 this is done strategically since people really didn't have cell phones and where the movie is, we're in a backwater hospital that isn't all that busy. So things like this could be done without necessarily being noticed. And I mean, people are dying in hospitals pretty regularly. And I do kind of want to comment a little bit on this. I do wonder if there are like drug, tra or not drug, organ trafficking type things that are going on. Like even now today, just because this would be a big business. And I mean, if you have the money and you can get a, like a black market, you know, kidney or, you know, liver or something like that. I just wonder if there are types of things like this going on. I mean, I know you hear things about like the dark web and things like that going on in other countries, but it makes me wonder if like the hospital down the street, are they doing stuff like this as well? But next, I kind of want to delve into the character of Mandy. We learn a lot about her in some interesting ways. Now, she is a hick and it appears that her half-brother got her addicted to drugs. And there's also talks that he may have molested her when they were children. I bring this up because she is broken from the start of this. She's on probation for her addiction. We see a few different times she's taken drugs. Now, Bettis plays this character so well, though. There's just something about her and the snarky attitude to the role that she just really works for me. And she also plays a junkie who is needing a fix very well. And, I mean, she also plays this character where she's very awkward at times. And, I mean, I give her credit for knowing her niche and being able to kind of act into those, like, realms of it because she does it so well. Then on the other side, we have Regina, who is dumb. There's even a funny line in this where she's called dumb by somebody and she states back that every teacher I ever had said that. And I mean, what I will give her credit though is that she does have survival instincts. She is in the wrong with most of the, most of the things in this movie that she does. Her mistakes cause all of these events to happen. 
but she never takes blame. She doesn't think she's dumb, and we see her do a multitude of things that just keep making these events of the night worse and worse. For one, she doesn't know what dialysis is or where you'd find a kidney, and I will give it to Farnworth. She does a great job at playing this character, and she made me laugh quite a few times as well. And I might as well just finish talking about the rest of the cast. Arquette gets high billing, and I think this is mostly for name recognition because he's really just more of a cameo here. It is a role that I haven't seen him play in a while, and I thought he was fine there. It is fun to see Foley as a bad character here, because he's such a nice guy normally, and I dig seeing that. Kit Williamson is fine as Officer Myers. I really like Gamby Turner, Perry, and Segan. The former adds comedy and sass to the role that really just kind of, when she was on screen, she does a lot and plays well off of Bettis. Perry does have a bit where she sings, and she has a good voice, but the song that they're singing just kind of felt a little bit weird, but... I kind of dug what they were doing. And the rest of the cast does round this out for what was needed. Then to circle back to the story real quick, are some of the things are a little bit unbelievable. Now, as a comedy, I think that allows me to suspend some disbelief, but I also think that it hurts in building tension. For a movie that only runs 86 minutes, it does get a bit repetitive to me. And where this is only so much of the same thing that you can do over and over again, not that I hated this, I just didn't love it. And then I will say about the effects, they were good. They went practical with everything that I could tell, and if they use CGI, they hit it well. We get a bit of blood where it looks pretty real, and then there are some organs that we see, and those also work for me. I think it's just strategic that they're put in bags as, you know, and then by smearing blood on the inside, it does hide the effect if need be. And the cinematography was well done. I do feel like they use a little bit too much of montage sequences, though, to kind of pass some time, and almost feels like a little bit like filler when they do it as much as they do. And the last thing to really go over will be the soundtrack. We get quite a bit of operatic music that is remixed to have a more modern feel. Now this worked for me and it adds an interesting feel to the scenes that it's with. Overall the score just worked well with what the movie was going for. And it's not really one that I would seek out or listen to regularly. But in terms of the movie I think that it fit. Now with that said, this is an interesting horror comedy. I really like the premise of the movie of organ trafficking and it makes me wonder if this is really happening. The performances by our two leads of Bettis and Farnworth are both different but complement each other well. The rest of the cast work well around them and I can't really think of a bad performance. The effects are good and the soundtrack slash score fit for what was needed for me. If I have any issues, it would be the overuse of the montage sequence and some of the comedy and the movie isn't as based in reality as I would expect. Overall though, I thought it was solid. I would rate this as an above average movie for sure. It isn't great by any stretch, but I would recommend giving this a viewing if you like more outrageous, snarky comedies with some horror aspects to it. So my rating here is a 6.5 out of 10. And what I'm gonna go ahead and do though is kick you over to the trailer for my second featured review. Freeze as you watch a warped scientist become transformed into a godless beast when his bloody scalpel probes the forbidden secrets of a woman's flesh. In Atomage Vampire, you will flame for the stark ritual of a beautiful girl's last searing dance as tragedy forever mars her loveliness, leaving her to face a world of terror. I give you my word that I will restore your face, restore all your beauty. You will cringe as the demented doctor experiments with a girl's trusting innocence. But to possess the living miracle wrought by his twisted genius, he must forever sacrifice his soul to the cunning gods of evil. I'll transplant directly from another human being. 
a mad creature born of the atomic age, now shackled to a world of rotting bodies and violent death. A sadist, a criminal, a depraved animal, more ferocious than Jekyll, more monstrous than Frankenstein, more bloody than Dracula. <laughs> Fire a volley through the window pane. You will get as lust and madness stalk the dark and screaming night in Adelaide's Vampire. And for my second review on this episode, it is going to be for Adam Age Vampire from 1960. This goes under the original title of Sadak L'Erde di Satania. This is directed by Anton Giulio Majano, who also co-wrote the scenario with Gino DeSantis and Alberto Bivil Aqua. And then the story acquisition came up from Piero Monviso. This movie stars Alberto Lupo, Suzanne Laurent, Sergio Fantoni, Franca Parisi, Ivo Garani, Andrea Scotti, Rina Franchetti, Roberto Berti, Gianni Lotti, Tulio Altamura, Gianni Pisa, Francisco Sormano, Nicolette Vari, Apio Carti, and Bruno Benedenti. Now, if I do say any of those names wrong, I do apologize. This is a horror sci-fi film, though, from a co-production from Italy and France. This is currently sitting on a 3.8 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a stripper is horribly disfigured in a car accident, a brilliant scientist develops a treatment that restores her beauty and falls in love with her, and he'll do whatever he can to keep her. Now this is a movie that I'll be honest, I had never heard about until I was going through a list of 1960s horror films on Letterboxd, and I do actually realize that's a bit of a lie because I was going through my list of films to see that is, you know, quite long, and it seems like that... Brian and Jamie Sammons from over on the ABCs of Hidden Horror had covered this, I believe, on their Colossal Collection as one of those giant collection DVDs that they have. But I didn't really remember a whole lot about it until I was kind of looking through some stuff. But this movie did sound intriguing, and I already had figured out, you know, what 2020 movie I was going to watch. So I decided to give this one a go since it was close enough to do a kind of double feature for it, which, I mean, you've obviously heard already on this episode. Now, before I get into kind of the synopsis and everything. I do want to go over just this something here and then some notes that I have about the key people. Just to preface this as well, the version on Amazon Prime Video and on Tubi is I read that that's the American cut that runs about 68 minutes. The actual European cut is 108 minutes. I ended up watching the cut that was on YouTube that is 87 minutes, which is interesting. When I look at this IMDb page on my phone, it comes up as, you know, the much longer cut. But when I look at it on the actual desktop, it says 87 minutes is the actual length. I'm not entirely sure what's missing or what the difference between the cuts are. I just wanted to make sure you were up to speed on that. Now, as for the director here, Anton Giulio Mangiano has directed 56 movies, but this is the only one that he directed in the horror genre. But it seems like he was a much more accomplished writer in the business with 64 credits, as it makes sense as he also co-wrote the scenario here, which is his only credit in writing as well. Now, Alberto Bivil Aqua 
was the opposite. He only had 18 writing credits, and it appears he worked with Mario Bava, though, as he collaborated on the screenplay for Black Sabbath, which I have seen and do thoroughly enjoy, and he wrote the screenplay for Planet of the Vampires, which I haven't gotten around to seeing as of yet. Gino DeSantis had 39 writing credits, with this being the only one as well in the genre. Piero Monviso came up with the story here, but this is the only one that he did that for, and it looks like the only other credit was as a second unit director for a drama called Red Lips. And then we have Alberto Lupo was in 64 titles as an actor. This is the only horror film, though. I did happen to see him in Ulysses from 1954 as an uncredited suitor to Penelope. This is interesting because this one is the one that stars Kirk Douglas and Anthony Quinn, but it's one of those films that these actors went over to Italy to be in, which kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Then we have Suzanne Laurent, had a short career with only seven credits. She was in horror movies, though, in back-to-back -back years, with the first one being Uncle Was a Vampire from 59, and then this one the following year. And then we have Sergio Fantoni. On the other hand, he had 82 credits to his name. This is the only horror movie that he was in, though. He did appear in three episodes of a TV miniseries in the genre called La Trachia Verde from 1975 to 76 as a character named Thomas Norton. Now we start this off with a Pierre Mornette who is Sergio Fantoni telling Jeanette Morneau of Laurent that he can no longer see her due to her profession. Now it calls her a stripper and I think that's a bit misleading here as we'll see kind of a bit later. It's more akin to like a go-go or a belly dancer. I mean this is me splitting hairs but this is just kind of something that I thought was kind of interesting. And then regardless though he leaves her and she ends up getting into a fiery car accident while she's you know distraught over what's happened and then she wakes up in a hospital with bandages on and she's depressed she's told that she'll never lose the scars and this is pretty much her world kind of crumbling around her you know kind of when it rains it pours type situation here news of her accident gets to a professor alberto levin who is portrayed by alberto lupo he tells his assistant that he believes that he can help her his assistant is monique rivera and this is franca parisi she goes to Jeanette to tell her this, but she is too emotionally distraught to believe her. Monique goes to leave and tells her that not to reveal that she came there, and that if she decides to take up her offer, to not tell anyone where she's going. Now, Jeanette gives in and goes to what they kind of consider a clinic, which turns out to be just a house. Helping Alberto and Monique is Sasha, who is Roberto Berti. He's a mute gardener. Now, he does live in a greenhouse, but I think that's a little bit of a cover for him and to kind of hide what this house is actually doing inside. Now, Monique pushes Alberto by injecting herself with this serum that they have called Derma 25, which the trials have turned animals into monsters. He then has to use Derma 28 to cure the effects before it is too late. So despite inviting Jeanette to use this new treatment, they weren't completely sure if it would work or not, and they were actually going to, sounds like, use her as a guinea pig. Now, they then administer it on to Jeanette, and it works. The problem is that the effects aren't permanent. Monique wants to send her away, as she can see that Alberto has fallen in love with her. He begs her to help him and to complete his research. The problem is that Alberto needs more of the serum, and this involves, it sounds like, killing young women to create it. I want to know how they got this made in the first place, if that was what they were using, or this is a way to cut corners. But that is never really kind of fully established. 
and not even Monique is safe here. Jeanette wants to leave, but Alberto won't let her. The police get called to the house by Alberto himself, as this seems to be part of a ploy to keep them off of him, while also putting him on their radar. Not really sure what's kind of going on there, but Alberto can't commit the horrible acts that he needs to in order to kind of get the ingredients that he needs for the serum. But when he injects himself with Derma 25, he becomes a monster that can. So that's where I want to leave my recap here, as I feel that I've given a bit more coherence to the story than what the actual movie does. And I don't want you to think I hated it completely, but it appears that, that even back in the 1960s, the Italians didn't always use the most coherent storylines, and a lot of it was more of just what they could give you on the screen. Now part of this could be due to the translations, which is funny since there are no vampire in this movie. It is a mistranslation of the title, which I did look up a little bit of trivia about this, is that it's just really just a sloppy translation of the original title name because there aren't any in this movie. So just kind of a weird little thing there. Then the first thing I really wanted to delve into is the Adam Age part of the title. The two nuclear bombs have been dropped in the, in the 1950s, you know, really were scared of what radiation could do. This is rightfully so, but I don't want to diminish the feeling in any way. Now, Alberto relays to a Commissaro Bouchard, who is portrayed by Ivo Garin, and the other cops as well as what I'm assuming is the medical examiner came with as, you know, he tells him about his studies in Japan into the effects of the atomic bombs, you know, drop their head. He has a souvenir that is a bit morbid of bottles that were fused together due to the heat. This is all a cool way to, you know, showcase that Professor Levin is an expert on radiation here. Now, taking this farther with the mad scientist angle, I even like them using more radical forms of treatment. We use radiation to battle cancer, and this started as early as the 1900s, which I didn't realize until I started looking into it. They learned that they could cause and potentially cure cancer, you know, with this type of stuff. I like them taking it farther to see, you know, if they could use it as a way to fix scars. This also plays into what can create monsters, you know, a leftover fear from the 1950s. The story, though, does fall apart for me. Alberto falls in love with Jeanette. His way of keeping Monique around, who loves him, is to tell her that at one point that he just has an infatuation with Jeanette. I think this is completely true, but the more we listen to him, he keeps thinking it's true love, even though what he's already said. This is fine for him to be driven mad, so I mean, I can, you know, play with that idea there. But they could also play more with the angle that he's just committed to proving his research actually works no matter what. And this would be kind of a cooler thing for me, because that makes him seem even more deranged. I think that this is just the easiest concept, and it didn't really work for me. What also doesn't work is that this plays like a Jekyll and Hyde narrative. Alberto uses a serum that creates monsters to change into one who can do, you know, what needs to be done to collect the samples. He then has a machine that can change him back. If that can be done, why doesn't he just use this on Jeanette? There's no reason to do the things that he's doing then unless he needs, you know, prolong her until the Stockholm Syndrome takes effect. He's smart, so I can see placating her enough without doing what he's doing in my eyes. It is interesting, though. This is a co-production of France, and this feels a lot like the movie Eyes Without a Face, which also came out here in the same year as, you know, where they're setting the movie and, you know, some of the concepts being used. The last aspect of the story is the vampire stuff. I'm not going to fault the film for the mistranslation. They are removing a gland from what I'm gathering, and I think that, you know, blood is also needed. So the confusion makes a little bit of sense. And I'm not even upset looking at what Alberto becomes as a new age, you know, type of vampire-like monster. He doesn't necessarily live off blood, but he does need it for other reasons, which, I mean, I can see kind of, you know, playing with the idea and doing something a little bit different with this subgenre. Now, speaking of the vampire, I will go to the effects of the movie. The look of the creature I really dug. 
the movie shows us some actual footage of burns caused by the nuclear explosions, and they modeled the monster to look after something similar. I really like doing this, and it impressed me. Is the monster the best looking? No, but I'll give credit to that we got a transformation scene done, you know, with time-lapse camera work. There might even been a bit of claymation as well, which I always have a soft spot for. Aside from that, I don't think we get much. This is in black and white, so it does help to hide things, and I thought the cinematography, aside from what I've already covered, was good as well. And the last thing I really wanted to go over would be the acting. No one really stands out to me, and if I'm going to be honest, Lupo is fine as his villainous mad scientist. I believe that role, but some of the writing becomes a bit problematic for some of the things that he does. Laurent is beautiful, but aside from that, she really doesn't add anything. Fantoni is kind of a jerk as well. The first thing we're seeing is you know him breaking up with Jeanette because of her job. That is fine, and I mean, I can't fault the guy if he can't you know be with her. But I think he knew what her job was coming in, so that's kind of on him as well. Now, he does care about her from what we see, and he does redeem himself in my eyes. Parisi is also attractive, and I liked her as the assistant to the scientist, and she's quite bold, you know, testing things on herself. Girani and the other cops are fine. The best performance for me, though, is Berti. He is a mute, so everything that he does is hand gestures and facial expressions. It is a bit convenient that everybody knows what he's getting at from these, but it is what it is, and I don't hate the movie and i mean i guess you can kind of you know forgive that and then the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed so with that said this is an interesting little piece of cinema that is left over from the past era there are some really good ideas that it is exploring with nuclear radiation its medical applications and the possibility of the monsters that it could create there are also some issues with how some things are written out and that doesn't really work for me the acting is decent, but no one really stands out in my opinion. I do think the effects were pretty good for what they're attempting. The soundtrack fit, but doesn't necessarily stand out. And I will say that the movie is a bit boring as well, as I struggled to find its way in my eyes, for the version I watched at least. With that said though, I would rate this as just over average for me. It is higher than most, but I really like some of the commentary and the ideas that they're playing with for sure. So I came in with a 5.5 out of 10 on this movie. So what I'm going to go ahead and do though is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me here for episode number 50 of Journey with a Cinephile. Just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of like feedback or anything that you'd like to be read on the show or like uh, to kind of do any of the lists that I've done so far on any of these episodes, you can definitely send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of my past episodes, you can do so at Reviews of the Dead and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, you can add me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU, where you can follow all of the reviews over there as well. And then also, I will have all of the links in the show notes there. And then if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile. And then if you want to download the Flick Chat app, you can do so on Android or iOS. And then my join code is Journey with a Cinephile. And then I can also ask that whatever podcatching device you're listening to this on, if you can go ahead and subscribe so you never miss a new episode, as well as rate and review, that would be greatly appreciated just so I can make this the best show possible. And then for the next episode, I am going to be attending the Nightmares Film Festival. Now, this is usually something in person, but because of COVID, they are doing it online. I already have my festival pass purchased, so I plan on watching all the features that they have on there. And what I think I'm going to do for the featured review on the next episode then is going to be kind of a festival roundup where I will kind of go through all the movies that are on there, you know, give my thoughts, my recommendations, and then I will give a rating. I'll also avoid spoilers so that way, because most of these films aren't necessarily, you know, getting released and a lot of them are getting, you know, some sort of premieres at this festival. And then I also have two screeners that I'm going to finally watch as they had an embargo until the 21st, so I will watch both of those as well. And then I'll also watch a 1960s film just so I can keep the journey with the aughts going. And on top of that, I will also try to sneak in some of the horror movie challenge movies that I'm working on as well. But that's really all I wanted to delve into here. I hope that whatever you do today, I hope you enjoy doing it and you are also being safe. This is your tour guide here, David Garrett Jr., signing off.